Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. You should be able to hear the magnetic resonance. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good evening, or morning, or afternoon, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time for a journey into science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. The Event Horizon features writers, lecturers, artists, filmmakers, and other talented creators of the fabric of this marvelous continuum we call science fiction. I am your host, Gene Turnbow, founder and station manager for Krypton Radio. And with me is Krypton Radio DJ, Gary DeBaum. Say hi, Hello. Gary. Hello. <laughs> and this evening, we have a great show for you. Our guest this week is Ryan Hendrick, the producer, writer, and star of Doctor Who the Siege. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Thank you for having me. Oh, we're glad to have you with us. I... Uh, Susan Fox, the uh, uh, executive producer, and I sat down and watched all of Doctor Who Besieged back-to-back last night. Wow. (laughs) And the trailers and the prequels and all of it. And, uh, wow, that was, it was a fun ride, I'll tell you. It was, that was a pretty sensational production. I have not seen, uh... I have not seen fan films this ambitious in a very long time. Hmm. Okay. Thank you. Uh, well, thanks. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad it worked. Um, you're always kind of quite worried when you, when you attempt something that you know to be insane. Um, <laughs> it's either going to go one or two ways. It's either going to work and it's going to be great or it's going to be incredibly crap. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tricky thing. So it's great to hear feedback. It's great to hear people that actually are able to sit down and, you know, take what we want to what, want them to take from it, which is enjoy it essentially. Gary, what was your impression when you when you first saw the? Uh... Yeah. Well, so far I'm I'm sorry I'm behind Ryan. So I've only seen the part one, and I have plan on watching the rest of it. But um, wow. I was real. I was really blown away by it because I have. It's been a while since I have actually seen a Doctor Who fan film, and the ones I have seen have not really been all that great. But uh, this one is really good. Thank you. Thank you very yeah. much. One of the things that uh, that struck me, you know, I thought, uh, uh, oh, it's Doctor Who besieged. Oh, the the producer has cast himself in the lead role. Uh oh. Uh-huh. <laughs> You know, I mean that <clears throat> you think you think to yourself, "Oh, this is going to be another Gary Sue," so to speak, yeah. and uh, and it wasn't. Uh, uh, 
yes, you 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 took the opportunity to cast yourself in the title role, but there was a reason, and that reason is you knew what the heck you were doing. You know, you're a great actor. You really, uh, you really <laughs> put forth a person. You had me sold. You had me sold on you being the doctor within about thirty five seconds. And oh, then, really? Yeah, thank you. Yep, that was that solid. And then after that, um, I could just pay attention to the story, and it was wonderful. Oh, good. And the um, uh, I I loved the fact uh, that you have uh, that you have this complex character arc built into this thing. You know, it's not this, and this is what separates. Uh, this is what separates work such as what you've done from from the unfortunate work that so many others have done, uh, in that you have really thought this through and thought it through deeply. Yeah, well, um, it was one of those things where, as I was kind of thinking about finally doing this, and I've been wanting to do a fan film for years, and every sort of stage that I got to, I was talked out of it. And finally got to a stage where, kind of aware that we thought, okay, we can make a pretty good crack at this. And we're looking, doing all sorts of research and looking at all the other fan films that have been made of, not just Doctor Who, but look at the Alien fan films of Batman, Star Wars. Um, and it was just interesting to kind of take what, what people were doing and what people were interested in and how it's moved on. Um, and particularly, I know, at the the biggest thing with fan films is, you know, they're made for fun. They're uh, they're made by fans who are, are not always trained actors and experienced filmmakers and CGI artists. You know, it's usually made by fans who are, who take up filmmaking as a hobby, and that you know. So obviously, mm-hmm. they have a certain level that they reach to. But um, it seemed to be kind of climbing that way that there were fan films were becoming more and more professional. Um, particularly if you look at, like, Batman Dead End and some of the Star Wars fan films. Um, And Doctor Who was kind of (laughs) up there, but it it kind of got to a bar and it hadn't quite stepped over a particular bar, which was a very high bar. Mm -hmm. Um, I kind of saw what was missing and thought, I don't know, and I'm I'm not massively technical, but from a performance and a story side, I kind of saw a gap and thought, okay, I know how to fill that. So without sounding too arrogant or presumptuous, I kind of understood what was working and what wasn't working and what, on how I, how I could um, approach that. But essentially, you know, you get one, sh- if you're going to do a fan film, um, you essentially get one shot at it. And if you get it wrong the first time, that's it really. You've kind of, you've kind of, you've blown your, yeah, your you're audience. Yeah, back after that. Yeah. Because you will always be associated with the first one that you do, um, and I say actually again that's why we ended up being where we are today because we did a twelve-minute short film of Besieged a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. um, which was just a mini segment of the whole thing, uh, but it wasn't necessarily designed to be that. It was it could be, but we also knew we were just making an open-ended short film, and that could be all it ever was. And luckily, it had a good. Response, and that's kind of what preempted um, us to go and do two full episodes. Uh, I got nothing. <laughs> no, <wait. laughs> no, uh, no. I'm, I'm, I'm just kidding. 
I'm, I was hoping that, uh, <laughs> Gary, do, do you have? Uh, no, actually, I, I was, he was, he was mentioning, he was mentioning uh, other fan films and, you know, I just, I was, you know, thinking about some of the ones that I've seen before. Uh, like I've seen a lot of the Star Wars back on, uh, what was it, theforce.net. And um, there was a couple of Star Trek fan, well, actually a fan series that I got hooked on and was watching, including one that was uh, done in Scotland. Oh, I, um, Intrepid, I think it's called. Yes, yes, Intrepid. You know, so uh, Starship Dundee. <laughs> yeah, that you know was, uh, but um, as far you know, as far as you know, Doctor, this is you know, like I said, one of the ones that you know really impressed me right from the beginning. And yeah, as Gene said, from like the first half minute, you know, as you as the Doctor, that was, yeah, I was hooked, and like I've, I've been a fan for years. Awesome. So. Uh, I think everybody loved eighty. Yeah. And she was just charming. Wherever did you find her? Uh, <laughs> um, Natalie Clark um, is an actress I've been working with for ooh, five years now. Uh, we met we met when she auditioned randomly for a, fe- a feature film I made um, back in 2007. Um, and she just totally impressed me from there on. And we got on really well as well, so um, we kind of did quite a couple of things together, and I really wanted to have her in the short film. She in the short. Have you seen? The, have you seen the short? I haven't seen the short version. I, 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 I needed to cut to the chase. I watched the long one. Oh, that's fine. Well, the sh- the short film is essentially the pre-title sequence of part one and the first ten minutes of part two. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and basically, the the Marine uh, Lieutenant Ryder. Um, mm-hmm. Natalie was supposed to play her because um, I thought it would be something totally different to what she'd done in other, in other work. Um, and then she had to pull out last minute because um, there was a schedule clash with a play she was doing. So she ended up suggesting Frankie McEachin, who, ran, who then obviously played Ryder in, in The Whole of Besieged. Um, but it was just kind of in the back of my mind because you know, she's, a, she's a Doctor Who fan, she loves her sci-fi, and... She kind she kind she understood why I was doing it. The biggest problem is when you're a filmmaker, um, when you want to do a fan film, uh, you have to justify to everyone why you're doing it. A lot of people don't quite understand the point of it uh, because obviously it's a not for profit. If, it, if, if, if money becomes involved at any time, you're instantly in breach of every copyright law under the sun. Um, so professional filmmakers think, what's the point of that? So then you have to explain it all to them why you're doing it at this level. Um, but she got that right away. Um, so it was just kind of in the back of my mind. And then when I was developing the full version, I was just in the back of my mind thinking, I really need this. We need a th- we need a triangle. We need another character to kind of get in the way here. I mean, who is this character going to be? And I was thinking, it really should be a companion because if Lydia is an ex-companion, then what's really going to grind her gears is that he's moved on and he turns up with someone else. Um, so then who could that character be what would she be like um, and I suppose if you look not if you look at the new series you kind of there's kind of only a couple of different types of companions if you know what I mean you get the you get the love interest you get the unrequented love or you get the best buddy mm-hmm. and, and I suppose Lydia is very much uh, 
I mean, Rose Tyler was the, the love interest companion. Martha Jones was the unrequented love. And mm-hmm. Catherine Tate's the buddy. Yeah. So essentially, you, get, you take the trait, the, kind of, the two types of companions being the love interest and the un- unrequented love are in Lydia. So it makes sense that you've got to have the buddy and the other and the other companion. So we just kind of started talking about it. Well, what could we do here? And we had some ideas. And I was very much inspired by the kind of relationship that Catherine Tate and David Tennant had. Mm-hmm. Uh, and somehow wanted to try and capture that type of relationship with my doctor and what would become Addy. And that's kind of and literally it's. I, I can't take complete credit for it. I mean, obviously, I, I wrote the cat, I wrote the, the dialogue for her, and gave her the scenes to play. But uh, ultimately, you know, she kind of took a very brief idea of what we talked about and just ran with it, and just was brave enough just to go that far. But I think she was very conscious. I've seen her do various interviews about this, and she always talks about she was always worried about step, going over a fine line of being endearing and funny and quirky. Or just been downright bloody annoying, uh, <laughs> uh-huh. and she's she's decided she's been very very brave and walked that tightrope uh, right down the middle. And I know some uh, most people really get Addy and they love what she's about. Uh, and obviously, there's some people who don't quite like it. You're either going to love her or you're going to hate her. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, I think the mono- the majority. Seem to love her as opposed to here. I, th- I think it. De- I think it depends. There's been like a few scenes where she says something, and first thought I guess something's going to blow up, and it's her fault. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. So yeah, she's she kind of comes across as a quirky dumb one a wee bit. Yeah, and but then, I, I I love I love that yo-yo scene in part one in the elevator. Just, just the two of you just there and uh, grabbing a yo-yo from her. It's just. <laughs> and that it's was these, and it's these little scenes. You know that really illustrate the character, and it's 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 all done that that particular scene has no dialogue in it, and mm. it's just the interaction between the two characters and and Addie's obsession with the yo-yo, and it just paints such a beautiful picture of the relationship between the two characters and gives uh-huh. them gives them gives that relationship uh, some real depth. Yeah, what what was really quite funny actually because um, that scene was a last-minute addition uh, and was a complete improvisation. Uh, we, it was just, we were very much aware because in, when we did the short film, a lot of the critiques that were coming back said it was very dark and there wasn't very, any humour in there. And we were very much aware we were trying to put different bits and pieces in there. And we needed something else because I think part one was all edited and we were having to film some pickups a few months later and... I'd kind of mentioned it to her. I think we need to have another scene. I'm thinking something to do with the yo-yo because obviously it becomes important again later on. Um, I said, we need something. Just need a, we need something to tie something in here and just give, give them a moment and give the episode a moment to breathe. Um, because the Doctor's just been introduced. We've laid on a load of set-up plot information for everyone to take on board and we're just about to go crazy uh, all the way to the end of part one so we need something just to break it up um, and we might if we have time we'll do it I mean, I, we weren't all that serious about filming the scene which is madness now when you look back on it mm-hmm. um, and literally you know we wrapped up everything we had to do on the pickup day and thought okay let's just let's just do this so we kind of cobbled together this set uh, and and did this scene and the three of us just kind of just said well how about you d- 
do something with yo-yo. Don't know what. Just do something, and we'll just see what happens. Let's just go for it. So literally, without any idea what we we're doing, we all just walked in there, and just it just happened. It was it just click magic, <laughs> and it's the it was the most unprepared last minute scene, and it's the one that everyone talks about. <laughs> I think because it was so genuine. <clears throat> I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's all. It clearly would have come. It's come out of the fact that we all kind of knew. By that point, we knew the characters and the story and where we were uh, mm-hmm. was completely embedded in us. So it was quite easy to tap into, and you know, another scenario, another sequence in, in the middle of this this chaos that they're involved in. So setting up uh, setting up a shoot like this, I mean, the, the, you have uh, you have the job of of creating the impression of this immense, immense spacecraft. And yeah. and the most of the episode, uh, most of part one actually takes place on it. Uh, yeah. And um, I was curious as to how one goes about setting up the resources necessary to shoot something like that. Uh, it's a bit of a blur, actually. <laughs> uh, I know. Yeah. And it's this is this is... This is the kind of thing our listeners will want to hear about because it's this is some of where the magic happens. It's the creativity exactly. and the creative madness that has to happen before anything gets shot. Yeah. Um it literally just became you know, wrote the script and it's like, how the hell do we do this? And it's like, uh and it was literally just kinda of, well we could do that here, we could, well we need something that looks like this. Um and we were quite lucky for a lot of it. Um, with existing locations, because um, when we did the short film, we we learned a hell of a lot. Because we mainly basically filmed in a boiler room, um, and figured out how to kind of make it. You know, wrecked spaceship looks a lot better than a clean, tidy Starship Enterprise, um, because you just throw crap everywhere and you put dangling cables, and mm-hmm. it's all right to see some of your your lighting equipment sort of dangling <laughs> in the shop. Uh, because it's stuff that's dropped down and you kind of mess it up paint schemes but um and you just got to be clever with the lighting I mean, our camera team camera and lighting team were excellent um and really kind of understood what we were trying to do and understood more importantly the limitations of trying to do something like this uh, but we were quite lucky with a couple of existing locations um we had a theater venue which was a subterranean building um which gave us a lot of corridors we had a storage facility you know, one of these kind of storage lockups where people store stuff. Yeah, that's, that's, um, that's what that's what I, I saw. That I said, must be a storage yeah. facility. And, and I always wondered for months. I wondered what the hell these walls were made of, and it turns out it's actually roof cladding of all things, really thin sheet metal. Um, so we kind of got quite lucky with these locations, and then it really came down to the problem of access to a laboratory um, because. Uh, the only kind of labs that are around um, are university labs, and at that point, the, the, the film council here weren't too helpful, and they want three thousand pounds for you. They let you in the door oh. uh, for location access for universities and stuff. It's a it's a nightmare trying to clear uh, space and time for these sort of things, especially in a, a tight schedule with a big crew like this. Um, and then again, we were looking for ages for somewhere to do the bridge. I was looking at computer centers, security room setups, I was looking at air traffic control rooms in private airports, <clears throat> and either everything was too big, inaccessible, or too small. 
uh, or, or too, expensive. too expensive. Yeah, exactly. So initially, it just came down to um, my colleague Dave Newman just said, "Well, we can build it." And Dave has a lot of theatre experience and is literally mm-hmm. used to kind of making things happen on a shoestring. Um, so and then we started looking at the idea of building it very much as a theatre set uh, with that kind of principle, um, but with four walls instead of two. Um, and that's literally what it was. I mean, the bridge and the lab are plywood sets that are about 10 feet tall. No. The, yeah, the, that's the, 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 yeah. the lab was a, was, a, uh, was a set you built completely? Yep, totally. Oh, I, uh, I was, I was yeah. marveling at that. I thought, <laughs> wherever did they find this location? Uh, and luckily, you know, obviously because of where they are, but, yeah, suddenly a lot easier to, instead of having to build four walls for everything, it's like, well, on the bridge there's going to be a massive view screen, and then in the lab there's going to be a massive window. Uh, so you put some green screen and that covers one wall so you can put something really cool behind it afterwards. Um, but uh, yeah, it's literally, it's that with lighting schemes, clever set dressing and lots of smoke. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then you grade the hell out of it in post-production. Uh, uh, but that was always, a, I mean, there's a couple of bits where you can see it and, you know, I suppose it's a Doctor Who fan film so we get away with, uh, it's nice to have a wee nod to the wobbly set, quote-unquote. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but I think we kind of got away with it. So whenever we kind well, of look did. at it, and it, you did get away with it, and uh, you know, I yeah. mean, you can see some of the, you can see some of the wobbly stuff, and, and uh, but you accept it, and you accept it for two reasons: one, it is a fan film, uh, and the second is that it's actually a bit better than uh, than what uh, Tom Baker had to work with when he was on Doctor Who. You know, Tom, ba- Tom Baker had a uh, boiler room to represent a uh, spaceship and a rock quarry to as, as for uh, alien landscape. So uh... yeah, I, uh, I actually had a funny comment. Actually, I um, we showed this uh, to an audience uh, at a convention, and uh, John Levine, who played Sergeant Benton, was in the audience and came on stage afterward and said, "Bloody hell, that's better than some of the ones that we used to make." Uh, back in the seventies, so that was that was kind of that was really humbling. So, from someone who was there to kind of sort of get up and say that, so that was that was quite. Yeah, it's it's actually point. kind of true, you know. <laughs> some of the <laughs> some of the Tom Baker episodes were not that wonderful. You know, no, but again, I, but with a lot of Tom Baker stories as well, you you allow it. You it, it doesn't spoil yeah, you it. Allow it. The you drama, know, the... the story works really well, and you're really engaged by him. Um, yeah, well, and so that's, a lot, a lot that of it doesn't really bother me. It kind of annoys me when people slag off Doctor Who and say, "Oh, it was rubbish. It was all these wobbly sets. Nothing worked." It's like, well, at the time it was made, it was kind of cutting stuff, uh, cutting edge sort of stuff. You know, they're always what's always been great about Doctor Who, whatever, because it's been on for so long, it's always kind of been at the forefront of uh, sort of the height of sort of British television. Um, I know, obviously, in the eighties, Star Trek: The Next Generation kicked off and made us all look very bad over here. But that. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, the, you're right, and uh, well, Doctor Who's been on sort of on the cutting edge for a variety of reasons, and it hasn't always been for the quality of their, you know, the quality of their sets or the quality of <laughs> their effects. Uh, a lot of the times, uh, when those points were lacking, the show was sustained 
by the amazing writing and the amazing characterizations that they brought forth. Uh, but uh, just the, the story of how you ended up having to build your own stuff, because it was in the end cheaper to do that than it was to yeah. use locations, you know? Yeah, it's also easier as well, because then you've got complete control of it in your own space. Um, and if you want a particular camera shot and you can't get the camera in there because it's a wall, you take the wall away. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we were just uh, talking to Travis Ritchie, uh, Inspector Spacetime. Mm. Perhaps you're aware of, of, of his work. Uh, no, I'm not, sadly. It's the, uh, it's, it's the web series is called Untitled Web Series About a Man Who... Tra- about a... Untitled... Uh, this is such a mouthful. Yes, I know the one you talk, you're talking yeah, about. Untitled now. Web Series About a Space Traveler Who Also Travels in Time. Yeah. yeah. You know, and it's it was based on a... Uh, uh, based on a show within a show on um, NBC Television's Community. And it's a Doctor Who spoof, you know, a satire. And um, uh, when he was shooting his first episode, he rented his phone booth, you know, which was red (laughs) instead of blue. And um, it cost him, I think, uh, about a thousand pounds, roughly, for the phone booth for like a day. And, uh, or for two days. And, uh, he ended up, uh, with the second, by the time he got around to, uh, shooting, uh, shooting his second episode, um, uh, they had gone ahead and built their own from scratch and it cost about a thousand pounds. So it paid for itself the first time they used it. And it was all, it wasn't, it wasn't just the, the rental on the, the, uh, the phone booth, it was the insurance and the truck uh, rental. And, yeah, you know, because they had to have, it didn't come apart. So they had to have this, this huge truck to carry it in and all of that. Yeah, we, we looked at doing some, hiring a police box for it. And by the, by the time we get carted up from down in England, it was going to be about a thousand pounds. And we tried to build, we thought about building one, got the schematics, we attempted it, we failed. Uh, to the point where, you know what, we're going to do it in post-production. <laughs> <laughs> to the fury of the CG animators. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, I imagine. <laughs> you know, but it's... <clears throat> if you're, I assume you're going to go ahead and do uh, a, another episode. Because mm-hmm. uh, the second episode, um, the second part of Doctor Who Besieged, Leaves us on a cliffhanger, something of a cliffhanger. It does a little bit, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so it, there's it, nothing. Nothing's been decided as such. Um, it would be nice to do another one. Um, again, this is we've, pro- we've probably might, pretty much treated the two-part version of Besieged very much like the short. We did it thinking it'd be nice to do another one. But if we don't get the chance to do another one, then we're able to kind of do something that has a bit of an impact anyway. Um, have you thought about... Uh, I have no idea how you funded it this time. Um, have you thought about uh, using crowdsource funding? Yes, and I won't, because uh, the problem with that is that's when the BBC decide to get in touch and say, eh, eh, um, 
because I'd, I actually did attempt to do it on part two because our post-production schedule was was taking forever because I, everyone was doing it for free so everyone else was doing it in between work. So I wanted to get it out a lot quicker because part one was doing really well. So we attempted to do a crowdsource so I could pay the post-production team to work on it full-time. Um, and about a week or two into it, I got an email from the BBC. Oh, my goodness. Um, kind of posing some questions. Um, luckily, it wasn't a cease and desist order. It was, a very, it was actually a really nice email. Uh, it was a really nice email saying, "Who we th- we've seen you're doing this. Uh, not too happy about there being money involved in this. You might want to rethink this. Um, so it's very much a kind of, mm, we're not going to shut you down, but you might want to change this before we decide to do that. Um, mm-hmm. So it was it, it, what was interesting as well. It kind of put it put the the rules on the table really, because I know a lot of fan production have been doing it in America for Star Trek. Um, you know, Star Trek Renegades, and I think Phase Two are now thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, things work very differently in America to the uh, unlike what they do here, because obviously, you know, for example, all your kind of fan fiction like Star Trek and Star Wars, they're all owned by independent studios and companies, you know, like uh, CBS and uh, Lucasfilm or now Disney. Um, but, you know, Doctor Who is owned by the BBC and the BBC is a public body and it's it's a completely different kettle of fish and actually a very politically complicated beast, actually. So, um, who are very protective of their brand. Um, but are very much... They're not, I don't, I'm not saying they're not open to fan projects because there's been a long history of fan projects and some of which they have actually supported by having one particular fan film they actually included on a DVD of the war games mm-hmm. uh, so and actually there was an article in the Doctor Who magazine uh, this week actually talked to you about fan films as well um, so I think it's very much fan films uh, legally are very much a grey area um, I think they can, they are, they're allowed to exist until such time as they misrepresent the brand, or they start, mm-hmm. or the, the filmmakers try to profit financially from from the copyright of yeah, others. Basically, that's pretty much how uh, that's pretty much how CBS feels about Star Trek. It's like they're okay with it, but as long as you start you start making money, they're going to put a stop to it. And exactly. Disney, I wouldn't even bother trying to do a Star Wars film because I don't know what they are like. Uh, yeah, they, got, they got they got tough lawyers. Lucas right, so. Lucasfilm actually has a special relationship uh, with the fans. They actually <coughs> yeah. encourage the creation of fan films. That's interesting because I know the, the Disney are very strict, but obviously Lucas uh, has been very forthcoming and really welcomes fan films to the point. Don't they have? An, they actually an, they actually sponsor their own set. competition for yeah. the best Star Wars fan films fan productions every year. Yeah, so they so actually they actually go out of their way to encourage it. Yeah, but again, you know, it comes down to the same restrictions that you just mentioned. Uh, they're not allowed to make money from it, and they're not mm-hmm. allowed to misrepresent it. Uh, yeah, but it's 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 interesting. You know what I what I picked up on what you said was that the BBC is a publicly held uh, body. It's not a private corporation. Mm, that's right. And and that does uh, that has to have an impact on on how they perceive the uh, the intellectual property and how they how they uh, how they maintain their trademarks and brands. I think so. Yeah, I think it makes because they are part public body and also 
they are a corporation as well. Uh, very much makes that sort of process very, very complicated. Um, where it must give the legal department an absolute, you know, migraine every time it happens. Mm. Uh, it's a very tricky one as well. But, uh, but yeah, so I, I get a rather nice email from them and said, you know, mm, I'm not too sure if you want to do that. Uh, it's kind of, we, you know, we, we respect your fan, your your fan, and we encourage fan projects, etc. Um, but uh, what was really nice, actually, the very sort of the bottom of the email finished off with um, your production value. Uh, your uh, production values are higher than average, um, and we were we were concerned that fans may think you're the real deal. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> kind regards, BBC Worldwide. That's how they finished the email. It's like when. <laughs> it's like it's like it's like a slap in the wrist followed by a big sort of pat on the back almost, which was which is you're not going to get a better compliment than that, you know. No, you're not, uh, and it's it's um, you know one of the people have very uh, interesting ideas about uh, uh, how to interact with corporations who hold hold intellectual property, and one of the important things is that uh, you're you're dealing with. You're not dealing with people. You're dealing with a collection of rules that they're they're paid to operate. Yeah. And um, you know, it's not oh they're bloody bastards. It's uh, mm. oh they are constrained by this pile of rules that they have to conform to, and they they are compelled to say certain things, mm. and and take certain actions. You know, according to whatever their legal obligations are, and those legal obligations may or may not make sense in the real world, but they have to do them anyway. Yeah. It's very much... Don't don't annoy them. Don't get in their way, and if they decide to get in touch with you, do what they say. Um, you know, kind of, and be nice. Um, obviously, they're not too bothered. They, I think they got mis... They get misinformed or misunderstood what they were seeing. I think the, the the impression I got from the email was they were, they were under the impression we were we hadn't made part two yet. yet they thought, um, they, and they thought we were we were making the entire film for a DVD release, and all the videos on YouTube were our marketing campaign, uh, as opposed to it being a completely online fan series. Um, so very much, I kind of replied, you know, straight up, this is what it is. Actually, that's not the case. This is what this is. I see why you think that. I won't do this. Uh, hope that's okay. Please advise. And I've never heard back from them. That was about eight months ago. Um, yeah, which means so the which means the issue is, as far as they're concerned, is is tabled. Yeah, yeah. They're, they'll obviously be keeping an eye, but it's like, okay, that's fine. We don't have to worry about him. Um, touch wood. I bet there'll be a there'll be a letter in the mail first thing tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, Doctor Who and Alien, interesting, interesting, uh, interesting mix of intellectual property. Mm. Um, it kind of seemed like an obvious one to me. Um, it's very much, you know, the kind of atmosphere that you get from Alien uh, and the whole base under siege type storyline always works really well on Doctor Who. And essentially that's what Alien and Aliens and Alien 3, you know, and even Alien Resurrection, that's what they are. Uh, they're claustrophobic, dark, atmospheric, based under siege movies, mm-hmm. um, and it, yeah, it just kind of occasionally Doctor Who has tried to emulate Alien in different ways, and it just seemed like the obvious one to do. Um, 
and I'd, I'd seen various other crossovers. I mean, I saw the uh, I saw Julian Bain's Doctor Who fan series, um, Alternate Empire, which crosses over with Star Wars. Um, and what was nice about it, it wasn't done in a in a cheap way. And they'd actually explained how that actually happened and how they ended up where they ended up. And it was done in a very sort of believable way um, of them crossing into an alternate reality, um, into another universe where, you know, the Empire exists. Um, and that was that was quite cool, and they did it quite well. Um, so obviously I was thinking, okay, he's, they've tried to make it sort of believable. It's not just a, a cop-out. It's not a, let's put Alien and Predator together and not give us a story. Let's just do it. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> although I will say in defence I'm not slagging off the first AVP because actually I quite respect and like the first one because they actually managed to put a, an alright story around it and kind of explained it um, but yeah but that, so that, very much taking these different crossovers into account and thinking about how they were being handled and it's like okay well that's how people are kind of people are treating it with respect so we should do it in the same way so, um, so uh, our production manager, who set all this up for us, mm. who absolutely adores your work, uh, <laughs> her name is Cat Carter, and uh, yes, she, shout and out she, to Cat Carter. <laughs> yeah, well, more than that, she actually had a couple of questions that she wanted me to ask you. Okay. Uh, oh, she wanted. She says, "Tell him for me, number one, I love his doctor, and he will be missed." <laughs> and and uh, number two uh, was it was brilliant how they explained the workings and origins of the aliens, and it makes so much more sense now. And number three, will Doctor Who Besieged be explaining how they get to our universe for Ripley to fight? And number four, does this mean we can look forward to Doctor Who Hunted, where he must now deal with a predator? <laughs> 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 They're brilliant questions. Uh, okay, so let's just run through one by one there because I'm a terrible memory. Yeah, uh, okay. <laughs> number one number is, one. is just that she loved the Doctor and that he will be missed. Ah. And uh, I, uh, since episode two is out, I think I can be okay with uh, the spoiler at the end that yeah. uh, uh, that the Doctor regenerates. Or did he? Or did he? And we don't know. That's actually kind of... I don't really know what that was. Because the story is written in such a way that you don't know, even though uh, you have the visual evidence that he is, you don't know if he really is. Yeah, because there's always that conversation in the middle of part two where they're talking about how that can't happen anymore. Um, So, yeah, what's quite... uh, I think, again, that really comes back to our interpretation of... uh, playing it as if this is going to be the, only, the last time we do it uh, and very much is this him making the ultimate sacrifice for for you know the, the woman he loves um, and very much inspired by you know the cage of Androzani uh, and how you know Peter Davison very much kind of you know quite happily believed he was going to die and not regenerate into Colin Baker at the end of that episode and was quite happy to kind of give up his own life for to save his companion Um and that always that for me that kind of that I think that's why everyone loves the Chaos of Androzani and it's heralded as the best Doctor Who story because actually it is the best Doctor Who story ever made because it has everything on the tin 
the Doctor Who's about, what he's a hero. And it's the only real time they've really, really managed to kind of go further and actually really push the boat out and really describe that, you know. And, you know, like the last the last um, episode in Kids of Androzani is stunning. Uh, and particularly the last five minutes is just absolutely incredible, just what he goes through to try and save his companion. Um so, yeah, I was very much kind of inspired by that, uh, particularly because that's the story that, that I was introduced to Doctor Who with, and that's the one that, you know, hooked me as well. So the, the alien, uh, the aliens in your, your, uh, your short films, uh, I, I, they're really not short films. They're actually full-length Doctor Who episodes. Yeah. That's what they are. Uh, and, uh, but... I noticed you used a variety of techniques to get the aliens on the screen. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. Um, initially, uh, when we did the short film, we had uh, Brian McEnroe, who is an incredible sculpturist, uh, an artist, and actually built and made his own Xenomorph suit from scratch and actually, you know, puts it on and operates it. Um and we got found him, and he came in and did um, the short film for us and did various shots for us in the full length as well. Um, and that's great, and it looks fantastic. Um, it sure it's does. Quite, quite creepy on the screen. I remember um, there's a scene, which is actually not in the full film anymore, is that there's the bit in part two where there's a massive explosion and Lydia and the Doctor are thrown um, and between that and the sort of anti-gravity bit that we're holding on to, in the short film, there's that explosion, and then we set up, um, you know, and the Doctor's like, are you all right, blah, blah, blah. And then a xenomorph comes in from behind over both our shoulders, and we kind of look around, and that's the cliffhanger. Uh, and that's where we ended the short film. Um, and when we were lying down on the ground, having just been thrown from the explosion, um, we're kind of waiting to go, and Brian's head is in the neck of the alien. So he thinks he's a good bit away from us, but actually, by the time the net goes up and the head come, the big dome or you know, sort of coned head comes out, mm-hmm. that's come right down to where we are. So we're lying on the ground looking up at this thing, this big mouth of the xenomorph, and it was really quite creepy because a really dark corridor as well. So it's like, okay, that's just wrong. Uh, <laughs> but and that's the it's the one it's the only monster. In the history of cinema and film, that, uh, cinema and television, sorry, the, um, that creeps me out. I mean, the alien movies to this day still creep me out um, because of the atmosphere and, and just the look of that creature. So, yeah, we had the guy in the suit, and then when it came to the full length version, there's a lot more we wanted to do, and it started out from what physically we couldn't do with the guy in the suit. Um, and obviously the CGI artist uh, had a desire to do the Queen. Um, and I was quite interested in bringing the Queen into it as well. Uh, and came down to facehugger. We had one real facehugger, which was just a, a uh, just a model. It didn't actually walk around or anything. Um, and we had a load of CGI. Um, xenomorphs, Queen uh, eggs, and facehuggers. Uh, and it just became down to what what can we do? I mean, do we go out and try and do the whole puppeteering thing, or can these guys that are doing the effects can they successfully do what we need them to do? 
uh, and they were confident they could do it, so we went down that route. Um, but yeah, it was yeah, it's a complete mashup of uh, real real model effects and um, sort of puppet effects and CGI. It's mar- it was it came off marvelously. Yeah, it worked really well actually. I mean, I, you're always quite when you know when you're doing zero budget science fiction and you're heavily reliant on CGI. Um, you're always very worried that it's going to be something really ropey is going to come out. So, um, so it was kind of a white knuckler until you saw the stuff uh, being assembled into the final cut. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I was always really worried about how the xenomorphs uh, and the face huggers were going to work out. Um, and the queen didn't bother me so much because the queen design's great. Uh, but the anim- animating the queen uh, must be it must, must just be a thing with the alien queen. It's a nightmare to animate. I've never seen it move convincingly in any of the alien films. Uh, you know, you see that shot when it's running in aliens, and it looks so. When you see it close up, it's great. But when it runs in a wide shot, it, it's like, oh my god, what's that? Uh, <laughs> it's like particularly the bit when it falls out of the airlock. An aliens at the end, and it's kind of it's screaming, it's screaming, and you just see the arms going, you know, there's a very sort of limited movement. It's like, oh dear, that kind of let that down. Um, so you're kind of that's all right for there. They've never got they've never got the alien queen right, really, in terms of uh, fast action, uh, and the same very much uh, as I suppose in our one. I mean, all the close up shots of it running and it snarling and doing stuff looks great. Uh, and the, that one wide shot is the only thing I wasn't completely happy with, but because no one's ever got a wide shot of an alien queen running right, it's all right. It's fine. <laughs> um, I suppose that's another homage to being an alien fan film. Uh, <laughs> yes. And I'm sure that was intentional by the artist. Um, but again, it comes down to time as well. I mean, I, uh, I think their work is incredibly stunning, uh, what they did in this film. And, Paul, uh, our main CGI artist, um, always says, you know, it's like, um, when do you need it? Yeah, you say two weeks, that's it, you'll get two weeks' work, it'll look like two weeks' work. If you give me a month, it'll look like a month's work. Um, and these kind of things all about are all about how much time you can really give to do these things, because it's all about individual textures and layers. I mean, you know that yourself, it's all about the smallest... If you had a year to if you had a year to work on just that one shot, it'd look amazing. But if you've got two days to work on it, then it's going to be good. But it's going to be it's going to look like today's work, um, etc. Uh, but yeah, but uh, so that was fine. And then the facehuggers turned up, and I was blown away by them. Totally blown away. Um, it was re- really really well done uh, from my perspective. I thought it looked incredibly realistic. Yeah, uh, it was. I had uh, a few sort of complaints yeah, <laughs> from they, people who they didn't totally, see it coming. They totally uh, blew me away as well, and and fortunately, the Marines in your script returned the favor by blowing them away. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it was nice. You know, you, you you'd see the uh, uh, they they seemed a bit more vulnerable, you know, in um, um, in your film than they did in the original movies. Uh, because a bullet hit normally wouldn't take them out, mm. you know. But in yours, they did, and that made them a little bit. And and uh, I understand the reason for doing that as well, uh, is because it, the 
situation has to be survivable in some way, or your story is over really quickly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, I mean I, that actually brings us to a good point. Because it's a crossover, uh, you need to be respectful of the rules and morality of both worlds. Um, and merging them were quite interesting. So you take Doctor Who, you know, the Alien franchise, for example, uh, is quite gory and rather violent, and there's a lot, there's quite a lot of bad language. Um, you know, Bill Paxton, all I'm saying. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, and, but then you look at the you look at the you look at Doctor Who. And Doctor Who is, has a limit on violence and doesn't have any bad language. I think bloody and damn are the only two swear words I've ever made it into Doctor Who. Um, so you're kind of, you've got to be respectful of these. And because it was predominantly more of a Doctor Who fan film, um, and we were going with the format of Doctor Who, it very much um, decided that we were going to have to pull back on the violence, not allow any bad language. No decapitations, you know. Yeah, but uh, but obviously we did allow um, the CGI artists uh, to kind of let the handbrake off a little bit because you still have to convey the fact that these aliens are brutal creatures. So that's yeah. why I suppose more, and that's why there's uh, you do when the when the face huggers get shot, they get blasted, and the goo goes everywhere. And in part two, there's you know, there's a bit of blood, and people get killed by the aliens. Yeah, you know, there's a there is a fair amount of blood, but most of the blood is green, and that kind of takes the uh, that kind of takes the edge off of the the stomach churning aspect of that much violence, and yeah. uh, you know, it sort of puts things back in perspective. I think so. Yeah, I mean, that, another example of that is is the scene with uh, Hamish Wilson's character in part two, where obviously you know, writing that scene is a perfect example of taking the morality of both the Doctor of what we know of him now and the, mor- the morality of that situation in the Alien movies. And it's, this is, that's what they do in the Alien movies. It's the most moral thing to do. And people kind of, you know, pluck up the courage and they do it. But obviously you've got the situation with the Doctor who, you know, will not, uh, you know, has made a vow never to do that again. So I thought that, that again, that's where the crossover really works for me because you can really play with that. And you're able to play with it in a fan film in a sort of area of emotion that where most fan films will not go down that kind of route um, of dealing with such um, intense um, emotional situations. And that was another challenge for me to kind of take that on board. Yeah, there were, and there were many such situations. Uh, uh, there's a situation where Lydia saves the doctor from making uh, a yeah. very unpleasant choice by yeah. taking the decision out of his hands. <clears throat> Literally, yeah, literally, yeah, and actually, that was what was quite that was that was a big debate actually, um, because initially, I took the decision uh, in the script that's not what happens. He follows through on that, um, and I was aware at the time this is probably going to change because I think this is too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the time, because of the morality and what we're crossing over with, it made perfect sense to do that. Um, but when it came down to it, when we were discussing it before it got shot, it was literally, well, you know, we've got two options here, and what do we want to do? And it just became apparent, one, we can't do that. We just certainly cannot cross that line as much as I think we came... I think he came pretty close to it. I think he probably would have had he not been stopped. 
Um, but again, that just shows the relationship between those two or what they once had is completely emulated in that in that moment, just by the look they give each other. Um, that she, you know, does the brave thing and takes that responsibility away from him, um, which really turns the scene round in its head. Uh, whether you think there's one moral dilemma, there's actually two. Um, so that that was quite powerful for me. I thought that was the obviously the much better option, but actually the most three dimensional option in terms of the characterisation as well. I I I think so too. I, Gary, you haven't seen that episode yet. Uh, what do you no, think? No, I, I, I was I was I did a crash course before the interview. Sorry, so <laughs> I haven't got the part two yet. But uh... <laughs> yeah, close your ears and we talk about part two. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. It's okay. I'm all right. <laughs> so, Gary, what did you think of what did you think of Addie? Addie. Addie. Uh, Addie. Addie. She was a. I got a Donald no- Donna Noble vibe off her. She she reminded me she reminded me of the the Doctor Donna relationship with uh, Catherine Tate David Tennant. Yeah, totally. That's that's uh, but uh, yeah, I, I I actually like that type of relationship with the Doctor and the companion as opposed to the uh, the uh, romantic type relationship. You know, so uh, that's what I like. You know, as as far as that as far as uh, Addie, uh, the character, I I like that. Uh, I'm losing my train of thought here. Uh, uh, the, the way she was portrayed, it was really good. That makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. I get you. Okay, mean. I'm so, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was I was just I was just getting into listening to this because I'm so used to listening to the Event Horizon. And I'm like, oh wait, I'm actually in here. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is our uh, this is going to be our twentieth episode of the Ooh. Event Horizon. So. Um, yeah, we we do that. We've been doing this every week now for a while. And, oh, uh, excellent! Yeah, and and it's actually gotten something. You know, it's getting more of a following, uh, especially when we get people like you on the air. <laughs> uh, we'll see. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the, it's being promoted. Don't worry. Oh yeah. <laughs> so how much how much direction did Natalie take? I mean, did did it uh, did she own the character so much that she, that uh, that she knew exactly what the character was going to do in a given situation, or uh, well, Natalie brought a lot to it, especially on the day. Uh, in terms of direction, that's not a question for me to answer, uh, as I wasn't the director. But um, from what I, I mean, the, what where I got involved uh, on that side of things is where she would come up to me with a script. Uh, and she would kind of either run it to me first and then talk to Lauren, or she would grab the pair of us and say, well, I've got this idea. You know, do you mind if I change this line to do this? Or do you mind if I add this wee bit or do this? So she always turned up with... You, she'd walk in in the morning and she had a sort of spot. You could tell if she had a wee sparkle in her eye. She'd look at you, you had that wee twinkle. Uh-huh, okay, what you got? <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, either aha uh-huh or uh-oh. <laughs> uh, usually a lot of the time you think oh god actors here we go oh they've got an idea oh no but being one of them that's perfectly fine um, but what what was great she was so in tune with it and completely understood her role in this so it was very much there's an opportunity there I can kind of take that uh, and again if it was too much she was reined in a wee bit you know 
I think it was one or two bits where it was debated, let's try it a couple of ways in case, you know, like the director would just say, well, let's try a bigger version and let's try a smaller version just in case that's too much. Uh, I remember it being on set for one particular moment and I thought, that's never going to be, that's never going to make the cut. That's just going to be a step too far. Uh, but then when you watch it back on the in the edit, it's like actually that worked brilliantly. So <laughs> it's it's a it's a it's a it's all about fine tuning uh, and making sure you've got different versions and different tones of it to make to give you options. So you're not you don't get somewhere because you think something worked one particular way when you were filming, and then you get to the edit and it doesn't work. And because you haven't grabbed alternative versions of it, you've spoiled what could have been a great moment. But luckily we had those moments, so um, it was great to kind of be able to play around with it and we ended up with some great moments in the, in the film. So you've mentioned that you've, you've obviously done other things. Uh, you've produced some films. Yes. Uh, what other films have you done? And, uh, and uh, at what level have they been succeeding? Um, well, I've been, I've been filmmaking since I was a teenager. Um, and that's always been my aspiration. And I kind of was very much self-taught. I trained as an actor, but very much self-taught in filmmaking. And I've just kind of built up that kind of, ex- the kind of experience. And you've got to make all the mistakes to, to, to learn, really, um, I believe. And I've basically kind of been going down the route of doing a lot of, uh, very, of low-budget, micro-budget short films and feature films. Um, which are ve- which probably besieged is probably the biggest one I've done in terms of ambition and the kind them the sort of size of audience it's reached. Uh, which again was an experiment to kind of see where, you know, how does an audience how do how does a, a large audience respond to my my voice, um, which was really interesting. So I'm quite curious to see where it goes next. Uh, but in terms of my previous work, uh, last before that I did a. Micro-budget feature film called Minds of Glass, which um, went to a couple of festivals and got a couple of awards, which was great. Um, and then before that, I did a short film called Choices, which again did the festival circuit and got some awards and got me nominated for a BAFTA. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> didn't win, but got nominated, so uh, no, I suppose. Yeah. That works. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's kind of... I went down the kind of the arty filmmaking route because obviously I'm interested in that. Uh, there's certain ways of doing certain things, um, but again, I really wanted to do a genre piece. I wanted to hit a large audience to see what people really think because your peers and filmmakers around you and your family and your friends they're all going to tell you you're brilliant, you're a genius, but I'm never going to be completely honest with you. So another great reason for doing fan fiction because fans of cult programs like Doctor Who and Star Trek you know, are very passionate oh, uh, and are very open with their opinion as well. So if you make something that's, uh, that's shit, they're going to tell you quite quickly. Um, but again, if it's really good, they're going to tell you it's really good. But more importantly, they're going to tell you why it's really good and why it's not very good. Um, and that is the most incredible learning experience you can make. And if something's bad, that's fine. Tell me it's bad. Tell me it's crap. But tell me why. Uh, and same if it's good. So it's good to kind of realize what people, what an audience respond to that you're doing and what they don't respond to. And you tweak that and you understand, you try and understand your audience. The biggest challenge uh, as a filmmaker is to understand what the audience want, what they're going to watch, what they're going to respond to. Um, 
and finding your audience. So that's on that on that plane um, of filmmaking. That's where I learned so much by doing this project. And uh, I would dare say that you has definitely found your audience. Uh, episode one of Doctor Who Besieged on YouTube has over eighteen thousand views at this wow. moment. And yes, that's an impressive number. <laughs> yes, it certainly is. Wow. Yeah, 18,000 views. And um, some of the trailers, more than that. And um, uh, it's an absolutely remarkable body of work. Thank you. And, and I'm absolutely charmed uh, that we were able to get you on the event horizon this evening to talk about it. Um, Oh, Gary, do you have anything else that you um, want to throw in before, ask him before we, uh, <laughs> before we finish uh, up? No, 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 but I tell you what, if they ever do ask him to be the next doctor on the actual series, I would be all for it. Oh, that's <laughs> a good one. Uh, Definitely, so. Uh, yes, it's. Yeah, we'll, st- we'll start that as a rumor, you know, Ryan Hendrick, doctor number 12, you know. So. Ryan Hendrick. That's a great rumor. Let's what get if, that. I would love that rumor. Well, and, and here's the thing, you know, they decide they want to stop doing Doctor Who completely. Ryan, you can just step into it. You're all set. <laughs> you know, you're all set up. You're ready to go. <laughs> yeah. What about uh, there? There's this big uh, there's this big hubbub about Matt Smith leaving after he said he was staying, and then um, uh, uh, the companion um, uh, Jenna Louise Jenna. Coleman suddenly saying, "Oh, I'm leaving too." Is she? Yeah, she's leaving as well. I didn't know that. I didn't yeah. see that. No, what? It, was, it was announced uh, announced about three weeks ago. She's leaving as well. And um, you have to you have to imagine that the two are linked, you know. And uh, mm-hmm. Matt Smith has described her as smoking hot, so I'm wondering if maybe there isn't something going on there that isn't in the headlines. Yeah, well, that's interesting because um, yeah, I thought she was committed to series eight. No, no, apparently not now. Mm-hmm. So we're going to have a new doctor and a new companion. Um, so she doesn't even manage to complete one full series. That's pathetic. Yeah. Half a series. That's, that's shocking. Yeah, it's, I'm not... If they, put, if they put me in the TARDIS, they'd never get me bloody out. I'd be worse than Tom Baker. <laughs> <laughs> I, would well, be, I'd, I, never, uh, I would be starting to go great. I would have a walking stick and everything by the time they got me out of there. So, uh, hey, I you mean, take the TARDIS console out of your cold, dead hands, right? <laughs> damn right. <laughs> So I'd be the same way, the but I'm not British. Is there, <laughs> do you think there might be a chance of, uh, of say, you submitting Doctor Who Besieged as your demo reel? <laughs> <laughs> I already did. You already did. They, they've already, they've already got his attention. So. <laughs> Good for you. And you already have the BBC's attention, certainly. And uh, you've demonstrated that you can carry the role. Thank you. That's very you know, kind of you. And it's it's uh, and that's not an easy thing, and it's not a small thing. And if they wanted any more proof that you were completely capable of handling it, uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know that anybody could provide it. So <laughs> it's just you're brilliant in it. Anyway, Thank you. Um, it's, an, it's a it's a strange beast. I mean, Matt Smith was very much 
quote-unquote unknown, but he wasn't really. He'd done a fair bit of high-profile stuff. But it's where they would take an even bigger risk and take someone who's completely unknown and not as experienced. But <clears throat> again, the Doctor changes. He can be played by anyone, so who knows? Unlikely, but, you know, start a petition. Get Hendrick in the TARDIS. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> I think it could work personally. Also, oh, do I. I agree. <laughs> Ryan Hendrick, the producer, writer, and star of Doctor Who Besieged, it has been a pleasure to have you on the show this evening. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you. And uh, we have a tradition. We usually ask the guest to push the button. The, the button. Know, at the end of the show. I think you might find yours on your console there. You know, it's it's to the left of the, the uh, uh, time rotor displacement. Ah, dial. yes. That yes, one's yeah, they won't let me push the button. I broke clipped on radio once. Oh, uh, dear. I have the buttons. <laughs> All right. All ready? Oh, yeah, set and ready. All right, go ahead. Here we go. Thank you very much, Krypton Radio. This has been episode 20 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for July 6th, 2013. Our guest this week was Ryan Hendrick, writer, producer, and star of the fan series Doctor Who Besieged. One of a privileged few who can truthfully say, I am the Doctor. Your hosts have been Krypton Radio General Manager Gene Turnbow and science fiction DJ Gary DeBond. This episode will air again on Sunday, July 7th at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turner. The part of the science officer was played by renowned science fiction illustrator Mark Schumacher. The part of the engineer was played by Fanny Dignitary, Christopher B. Wyatt. The navigator was played by Corsair's closet producer, Christine Cherry. And the role of the captain was voiced by science fiction writer... This program and its contents are copyright 2013 by Krypton Stay tuned for tonight's episode of X-1. Krypton Radio. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi. 